great. Brian. Yeah, talking to Brian is worse than... <laughs> Not gonna happen, Brian. Nope. All right, so we're having a conversation today about uh, friendship, and you've seen the whole video thing about, you know, the Brian guy, and let's just be honest, uh, all of us have a Brian uh, in our circle of friends. You know, they're, they're kind of that one awkward person, you know, within the circle. Uh, they, they don't really kind of totally fit uh, with everybody else. Uh, they, they tend to be maybe a little more needy and uh, demand a little more attention uh, than all the others. And, and if you were just to go to your circle of friends and go, okay, so who's the Brian? I mean, they'd all raise their hand. they go, that's ah, Jeff. Jeff is our Brian. That's just, that's just what it is. And if you're sitting here today and you're going, I, you know, I don't, I don't think my circle of friends has a Brian. That's because you are Brian. Uh, but you and I are going to spend the next couple of weeks, and we're, just, we're going to process this whole idea of friendship. And guys, I believe that this is an incredibly powerful conversation for you and I to have because, because I believe our culture is slowly but surely losing the art of real friendship, of substantial friends, uh, the way that it is supposed to happen within uh, our lives. It, it, think about it. Uh, we pull into our garages and the door closes behind us, and the reality is most of us don't know the names of our neighbors. Uh, we get on Twitter, and we tell thousands of people that we're eating pizza, but nobody cares. Uh, we get on Facebook, and whatever fight we just had with our spouse, we emotionally vomit into cyberspace. But the reality is we have, you ready? We are people with thousands of contacts, but very, very shallow relationships. Matter of fact, uh, there was an interview done just recently with Justin Bieber, who I know is everybody's hero in the room. Uh, but no, it's an interesting conversation because here's what Justin Bieber uh, said in this interview. He said, I have 35 million followers on Twitter. I have four people in my life that I would call a friend. And guys, I, I'm, just, I'm just afraid you and I are not necessarily that far behind him. And that if you and I are not careful that we, we, we lose this art of true friendship and what it really, really means to be in someone's life and have somebody uh, in ours. And so we're just going to spend the next four weeks just kind of talking about what it ought to be and how God designed that thing to be. And, and, and maybe, just maybe, seriously upping our game in this thing of friendship. How cool would it be? How cool would it be if at the end of uh, four weeks, you and I were the best friend in our circle of friends? In other words, in, in the entire circle, they go, boy, I'll tell you what, I mean, if you want a that person, that person who attends Cornerstone, I, they, they're the best friend in our entire circle of friends. I mean, that's what a friend really ought to be. How cool would that be for us? And then I, I'm going to suggest, too, that as you and I up our own personal game in friendship and you and I seek to become better friends to the people that God's put in our lives, that another benefit of this is that. As you and I begin to understand what friendship really is and what it looks like and how we're supposed to behave in friendship, you and I may actually begin to pick better friends for our circle of friends. 
So we're just going to do the journey. We're going to see what God does and see uh, where God leads us. And what I want us to do today is up the bar to talk about, hey, you know, what, what do really good friends, what do great friends behave like, do in the worst moments of life? What does it mean to really be a friend? And in order to kind of unpack that together, I want us to go in the Bible to what I think is probably the most powerful friendships uh, within all of Scripture. And in the process of just kind of dipping into different moments within this relationship between these two guys, uh, this incredible friendship that they share, you and I are going to get to unpack and go, oh, so that's what real friendship uh, looks like, and that's what a real friend behaves like when the chips are down and when life is tough. That's what a friend does. So grab your Bibles. We're going to go there today and hopefully... uh, up our game just a little bit. It's the book of 1 Samuel. And if you're not real familiar, if you go to the front of your Bible and then uh, work to the right, you're going to find this book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 18. While you're going there, let me set up some background uh, for you about what's getting ready to happen. David uh, has just killed Goliath. So he's a young man, uh, and he has just slain Goliath. And after that happens, Uh, Saul, the then king of Israel, calls David and says, hey, uh, I want you to come up and meet me in my tent. We're going to have kind of a slaying the giant debriefing meeting. And uh, they are doing that together. In the midst of that meeting, Saul's son, Jonathan, uh, is there in attendance. And upon meeting David, immediately knows, I like this guy. This this guy is my kind of, we're going to be friends for the rest of our lives. And in that moment, there is a bond of friendship that happens between these two men that will literally carry them through the best and the worst of times uh, in their lives. It's a remarkable, remarkable friendship, and it begins in this moment. So here we are. It's uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 20. I'm sorry, chapter 18. I'm skipping ahead already. Chapter 18, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. Uh, After David had finished talking with Saul, okay, King Saul, Jonathan, his son, the prince, uh, became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David uh, with him and did not uh, let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. So here's Jonathan in that room, talk, as his father's talking to David right after Goliath, and instantly Jonathan says, this guy, this guy is my kind of guy. He, and there's instantly a friendship connection. I think a big part of this is because David, in many ways, is a lot like Jonathan. Uh, he's a man's man. He's a man of action. He's a man when everybody else is afraid and timid, steps to the front and takes on whatever's uh, in front of them. And a matter of fact, you get a sense of this about Jonathan just a few chapters before this. 1 Samuel chapter 14 tells us the story of one day when Jonathan and his father Saul, King Saul, have gone out to battle against the Philistines. The Philistines have come down to raid Israel. Uh, There's a huge number of Philistines. And the Israelites are going out to do battle against them. The problem is this. In all of Israel, there are only two swords. So Jonathan's father, Saul, has one sword, and Jonathan has the other. Every other man in Israel has farming implements 
to go out and do battle against this army of the Philistines. So what happens is Saul calls a conference and they spend the next few days sitting under some trees discussing what the battle plan should be. This is driving Jonathan crazy. He's going, guys, it's obvious what we got to do. Let's just go get it done. And instead, they're having an elder board meeting underneath the trees. Jonathan sneaks off and says, I just got to go see this uh, for myself. And the scripture tells us that he comes across a Philistine garrison. And he turns to his armor bearer. Now get this, his armor bearer was probably a 13 or 14 year old boy who's too young for battle and his assignment is simply to kind of keep Jonathan's equipment ready and on hand. So he turns to this uh, young teenage guy and says, hey look, I've got this plan. Uh, Here's what I'm thinking. I'm going to stand up, you know, and uh, wave to the garrison, say something pleasant about their mothers, you know, something like that. And uh, then we're going to see how they react. And if they say to us, hey, you stay there and we'll come out and whoop you, then we're going to know that the Philistines are really confident because they're willing to leave their garrison to come fight us in the open field and we'll know that they they think they've got this thing sewed up. But if when I present myself, they say to us, hey, you come up here, you expose yourself to the garrison, you come up within range of us, we'll know they're actually already intimidated that they already know that God is with us and are afraid and that God will know then that God has delivered them in our hands. That's the plan. And you can just imagine that moment his, uh, his 13-year-old armor bearer probably said, uh, is there a plan B to the plan? But sure enough, Jonathan stands up, says, you know, hey, uh, your mother uh, sucks on combat boots or something. I don't know. And the Philistines look at him and they say, hey, Come up here and we'll show you a thing or two. And Jonathan, with a smile, turns back to his armor bearer and says, Come on, dude, because God just delivered him in our hands. And the story goes on, and Jonathan goes up to that garrison and literally, within the space of a few minutes, kills 20 Philistines by himself. Now, the Philistines on either side of the garrison seeing this are going, Okay, if one of them can beat 20 of us, then God surely must be with him. And literally the Bible says that the Philistine army began to circulate the rumor and they began to go into retreat and run away. There ends up being a huge victory for the nation of Israel that day. Jonathan, Jonathan is no one's wimp. Jonathan is a take charge, man's man, I'm going to go get it done kind of guy. And I think that's why when he sees David go slay Goliath, he goes, okay, now that's the kind of guy I can have as a friend. That's the kind of guy I can do life with. And the Bible says there's immediately a bond between these two men that's going to last uh, the rest of their lives. Now, here's what you need to know. In this same moment, also become the seeds for what is going to be the backdrop of absolute tension uh, and literally the test of their friendship. Because here's what happens after Saul meets with David in the tent. You remember the part of the passage said, and from that day forward, Saul took David to the palace. Didn't allow him to go home, but takes him to the palace. On their way home, as they are entering Jerusalem, coming back from this great victory where Goliath was slayed, the women of Jerusalem come out and begin to sing a song. And the song goes something like this. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And in that moment, Saul becomes jealous. And he goes, hey, what is this? Why is this young guy getting more accolade, getting more attention, getting more praise than the king of Israel? 
And there springs up within Saul an absolute spirit of envy and jealousy over David and the acclaim and the accolade he's getting. It seethes within Saul's heart every single day till it finally festers over and Saul decides there's not enough room in this world for David and me and one of us needs to die and my vote is David. And Saul goes after David to kill him. It's interesting because Jonathan, hearing about this, intervenes for his friend, says, Dad, wait, 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 this guy's done nothing wrong. Please don't tell me you're going to do this to him. Saul kind of acquiesces and swears an oath to his son. You're right, I will never harm David. Fast forward. He may have made a promise to Jonathan, but nothing has changed in Saul's heart. And so he continues to seethe and seethe and seethe every single day until finally as we get to the next passage, we find that Saul is right back to the same moment. He is angry and jealous and decides David needs to die. David gets word. Someone slips it to him. And David realizes, hey, Saul's coming back after you again. He goes to his friend Jonathan and he says, Jonathan, look, I'm going to have to leave the palace. Uh, Your dad is planning and plotting to kill me. And Jonathan says, David, no, he swore to me. He swore he would not hurt you. There's no chance he's going to break his oath with me. And David says, Jonathan, you're wrong. I'm telling you, I've got it on good authority. Your dad's going to try and kill me at this feast that he's throwing tonight. And Jonathan says, no, no, no. So they come up with a plan, and the plan is this. David says, you know what? I'm going to leave. See if your father misses me. And if your father asks where I am, you tell him that I went home to offer a sacrifice with my family. And if he says, oh, great, I'm glad you made that decision, then Jonathan, you'll know he had no bad intentions toward me. But if your father gets angry and frustrated that you let me leave, you're going to know it's because he was plotting to kill me tonight. And then his plan will be exposed. And Jonathan says, you know what, that's, that's a good idea. Let's do that. So here, that's where we're going to drop into the story here for the second time. And this is chapter 20. Verse 28, here's what it says. Saul has just said to Jonathan, Jonathan, where's David? How come he didn't come to the feast? Jonathan answered, "Uh, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town, and my brother has ordered me to be there. And if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. You notice when your kids do wrong, it's always the wife's fault. (laughs) Well, you win the award, that's a chip off the old block. But when you're doing, you're perverse. Anyways, all right. Uh, You are a son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Uh, Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse uh, to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done wrong, Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled a spear at him to kill him. So Saul gets so mad with Jonathan for standing between him and David that he literally picks up a spear and attempts to kill his own son. Then Jonathan knew 
that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger on that second day of the month. He did not eat because, because, because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Now, guys, you you need to uh, get this moment. Jonathan, because he is his father's son and wants to please his dad, and yet he's David's friend, is now in an incredibly uh, awkward moment. And and don't get the moment wrong. This isn't, Jonathan's not some adolescent, uh, rebellious teenager who's looking for a moment to thumb his nose at his dad. Matter of fact, if you read to the end of the story, you find out that Jonathan dies going to battle arm in arm, side by side with his father and fighting to the death. Jonathan loves his father, and yet he finds himself in an incredibly precarious spot in which he's saying, look, I want to do what's right by dad, but I want to do what's right by my friend, and suddenly I'm left in a moment to choose. And in that moment, Jonathan says, I got to land with David. Because, you ready? Because what my friend David is doing is right. My my friend hasn't done anything dishonorable. He hasn't done anything to abuse or to hurt my father. I got to stand with him. And the reality is what my dad is doing is dead on wrong. And it's shameful. There are moments in friendship where part of being a friend is just being faithful. It's just saying, look, here's the deal. The path you've chosen and what you're getting ready to do, right, it looks hard. But I'm just going to tell you, it looks right. It's the thing you ought to do, and it's it's the best course. And because I'm your friend, here's what I'm going to tell you, I'm going to stand with you. And it may cost me a whole lot. See, I may have people throwing spears at me because I stood with you, but part of being your friend is I am choosing to be faithful with you. And here's the deal. You're not going to have to look over your shoulder and wonder if I'm there or wonder if I'm going to chicken out if the going gets too tough. The truth is, I'm with you because you're doing what you ought to be doing. You can count on me. I'm going to suggest that in this moment, Jonathan is actually being a great friend to his father. That in this moment, when his dad is getting ready to do something wrong, that Jonathan is doing what none of the rest of Saul's friends are doing, and that's to say, wait a minute, this is a horrible plan of action, that this is going to be something that forever marks your kingdom. Whenever people tell your story, they're going to talk about the jealousy and the unfairness of Saul. If you go through with this plot, you're going to be known as the murderous king. You're wrong, dad. You're wrong. And I'm going to suggest to you that in this moment, Jonathan is actually being a great friend to both his friend David and to his father Saul. Because I believe that unlike what a lot of our culture says, which says, hey, look, if they're your friend, then you just need to support them no matter what they do. Oh, yeah, you're going to shoot drugs. Oh, I support you. Go do it. Oh, you're going to go run your life off a cliff. Oh, I support you because I'm your friend. You know what Scripture says? Scripture says the wounds of a friend can be trusted. That there's moments within friendship that the most powerful thing, the best thing you ever do for your friend is stand in their face and say, that's a horrible decision. And the kisses of an enemy 
are many. That, that the truth is, if you and I stand in a moment when our friend is getting ready to do something that's disastrous, getting ready to do something that will cause harm and regret in their life, and in that moment you say, well, hey, I'm your friend, so I'm just going to support you. Scripture would say you're acting more like an enemy than you are a friend. Because in that moment, real friendship calls you to stand in your friend's face. See, here's the deal. Friends don't let friends drive drunk. Friends don't let friends ruin their marriages. Friends don't let friends make decisions that ruin their integrity. Friends don't let friends alienate their children. And in the moment that you and I see our friend getting ready to do something that in the end we know isn't to their best interest, a real friend in that moment stands up and says, look, I... Here's the deal. This isn't about supporting you. This is about saving you. And I'm going to get in your face, and I'm going to say the thing to you that you don't want to hear, even to the point that if, if we lost our friendship, I love you too much to let you make that mistake and not call you out first. A while back, I... Uh, I had one of my friends call me up, Scott Rideout, who pastors uh, Sun Valley Community Church, and he said, Lynn, I'd like to talk to you for a little while. And I said, well, oh, hey, great, let's do it, let's get together. And uh, we sat down, and he said, Lynn, I, I just, something I want to say to you, I, I've just become aware that there's been a couple uh, moments where you've lost your temper. And I just, I just want to tell you that, that that's, that's actually diminishing your leadership. And I, I just felt I had to tell you that. To which I responded and said, you're absolutely wrong! No. <laughs> Not quite like that anyways. Uh, no. But I did, I did say to my friend, well, you know, you don't understand because I know, I know the moments you're talking about and, and, and what you don't get is, is that you're talking about somebody that I... I have been working with them and working with them and working with them for months upon months. And I can't tell you how many meetings that we've had where I've said, hey, you know, wait a minute, the way we did this last moment or the way, the way you managed that last thing and it, it didn't work. And so let's talk about a better plan and let's talk about, you know, improving that the next time. And, and, and Scott, what you don't get is just they're still doing the same mistakes. And I mean, it's just over and over and over. And, and the truth is they just worn me out. I mean, this wasn't the first time. This was the... 20th time, and, and yeah, I did. I got frustrated, and I, I probably got loud, and, and you said, Lynn, it doesn't matter, because the people around you who are seeing you respond harshly, they don't, they don't understand the other 20 meetings that you had, and that you've been working, and this person hasn't been listening. All they see is, hey, uh, Lynn must be like bipolar or something. Because uh, he's really mad today, but that person did that 20 other times. He didn't yell those times. And You know what occurred to me? As I wanted to take what he was saying to me and put it on a back burner or put it in the classification of he doesn't understand. And I said, you know what? My friend has absolutely nothing to gain by telling me this. 
the only thing that could be motivating him in this moment is that he loves me. And he's trying to help me. And I had to go back and reevaluate. I had to go back and say, you know what? There really is a leadership principle for me to learn. I, I need to be clearer when I talk with these people. I need to set up better performance reviews, and we need to talk about, you know, if-thens. And, and I need to get this thing cleared up way, 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 way before the 20th time. And I'm exasperated and getting angry. Let me ask you a question. You got a Jonathan in your life? You got a friend that uh, would say, look, I'm with you. This costs, I'll stand with you. You don't have to worry about me. I'm here for the good, but I'm here for the tough times. But maybe, maybe, maybe more importantly, do you have a friend who would say, hey, I, I just need to talk with you. And, and I just need to say some things to you that maybe you're not seeing in your own life. And I, I, if you just keep going that direction, let me tell you what's going to happen in your marriage. And, and if you keep doing that, let me tell you that you're going to lose the heart of your son. If you keep fudging the truth, pretty soon people are not going to believe you anymore. And I love you. I love you enough to stand in front of you and tell you the truth. Even if, even if this jeopardizes our friendship, I love you more than our friendship. You got a Jonathan in your life? The story goes on, and uh, Saul doggedly chases after David. He is determined to kill this man, and it goes on for years. And David is uh, living out uh, in the wild, kind of with a small group of men who put their alliance with them. They look like gypsies. They're, they're sleeping in caves. They're uh, staying overnight in small villages. Anything they can do to stay one step ahead of Saul. And now after years of this, and David's saying, okay, God, so why does this keep happening to me? And when is this guy going to get straightened out? And, and, and when does he realize I don't mean any harm? When, you know, David's worn out. He is worn out. He gets to a point where he just says, I, I, I'm done. He's, he's ready to throw in the towel in his life. And word gets back to his friend Jonathan. Jonathan, your friend David is about ready to give up. And Jonathan immediately goes to his side. So grab your Bibles again and go with me to uh, chapter 23. Starting in verse 15, this is the meeting between Jonathan and David. And here's what he says. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out again uh, to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. You get the moment? Not only does Jonathan come to affirm and to encourage David, but in the process of that, he says, David, and here's the deal. Everybody knows you're going to be the next king and not me. I mean, I may be in the bloodline, I may be the prince, but the reality is 
you're going to be the next king of Israel. Jonathan sees something in David. It's the hand of God. And guys, get this moment, because this, this moment, I think, is just crazy huge in this conversation of friendship. Because I'm going to tell you, from the bottom of my heart, Jonathan wants to be king. This guy isn't some timid guy. This isn't some guy who's running away from responsibility. The truth is, I guarantee you, every single day of Jonathan's life, he's looked at his father, Saul, and said, I could be a better king than that man. I could do that job 10 times better uh, than my father. And yet in this moment, he looks at the life of his friend and says, as much as I want that job, as fulfilling as that would be for me, I see God doing something in David. And he needs to be the next king. And guys, and I'm just telling you, I, I guarantee you every man in this room understands what I'm saying. This is crazy friendship. This is hard. Because every one of us wants the chance to prove ourselves. I'm, I'm off in Bible college my freshman year, and uh, I was going out for the football team. And before you think too much of that, it was a very small football team. Uh, but I'm going out for quarterback. My friend, Nate, is also going out for quarterback. I'm not too worried about this because I'm thinking it's pretty easy to see which way this ought to go. And albeit that Nate was a really good scrambler and he had an arm like a rocket, uh, the truth was I was in much better command of the offense. And, uh, and I was much more accurate in my passing. And so it should have been a very simple decision. And yet, lo and behold, I don't know what was going on with the coach. He must have been on drugs that day. Uh, he came out and announced my friend Nate was going to be the starting quarterback. And uh, they moved me over to wide receiver. And ironically, even though I was having literally an All-American year over at wide receiver, can I tell you what was in my heart every game we went to? I hope Nate has a bad game today so that I could get my chance to play and the coach could see that he made a bad decision. It's just, it's just what you do when you feel like you ought to be in leadership and, and, and that someone has misevaluated. And The really cool part of the story is, is that God answered my prayers. Uh, Nathan got hurt. And they substituted me in as quarterback. Matter of fact, it was kind of a nagging injury. And over the rest of the season, I actually played quarterback more than Nate uh, played quarterback for the rest of the year. We ended up undefeated on the season. This is a lock, baby. <laughs> we get to my sophomore year. We get out to the first day of practice, and the coach announces, Nathan is the starting quarterback. Guys, I'm just going to tell you from experience. What, what Jonathan is doing here is crazy hard. When you've seen yourself in leadership and when you've longed for that moment. Matter of fact, I'm going to suggest to you, I'm going to suggest to you guys that what Jonathan does in this moment is greater than what David did when he slayed Goliath. Here's, here's what I'm thinking, okay? When David slayed Goliath, David had to step up. In this moment, Jonathan has to step down. When David slayed Goliath, it was one giant. Jonathan is slain too. 
He's slaying the giant of pride and the giant of selfishness. David had to be brave for one day. Jonathan has had to slay these giants every single day for the rest of his life. And I'm just going to tell you, what he does in this moment is crazy, crazy, crazy. And I know some of you are going, well, I mean, okay, Lynn, so you just took the, you just took the standard of friendship off into like outer space. I mean, look, you just put it outside the grasp of what's reality for any of us in the room. I actually think this is simple when you understand what Jonathan's thinking. Because I actually believe that Jonathan does what anybody would have done in his shoes. I, I think Jonathan does what anybody who was heir to the throne is standing with great power at the very tips of his fingers, who knows that wealth of unimaginable amounts is coming his way. I think Jonathan does what anybody who would do with great power, great influence, great fame, right on the verge in his life. Who, you ready? Who believed that God had a plan for his friend and that real friendship meant helping that plan. Let me just say that again. I believe Jonathan does what any friend would do who believes that God has a plan for their friend and that the greatest act of friendship is helping God do that plan in their friend. Let me ask you a question. Do you have any sense of what God wants to do in the lives of your friends? Do you have, do you have any sense of what he wants to do in their marriage? Do you have any sense of what God's trying to do in their career path? Do you, do you have any sense in the life of your friend why they're struggling financially right now, what God's trying to teach them and what God's trying to do? Do, do you have any sense of what God's doing uh, in the lives of their children and they've got that rebellious 15-year-old and, and do you have any sense of what God's doing with your friend? And then second question, are you helping that plan? Are you hindering that plan? Are you just a neutral observer? Because, because, because. The best friends in the world understand that God is doing something in the life of their friend and that friendship means helping God get it done with them. And if you and I would simply do that for the people that God has placed in our lives, do you realize our friendship quotient would go through the ceiling? It would transform us as friends. I'm, I'm 20-something years old, and I get hired on at a church, kind of in a late midnight business meeting that a lot of people weren't at, and they hired me. I, it was crazy. And I show up the next day for work, and uh, there's a guy there by the name of George Bedlian, who's actually the executive pastor of the church, who's running the church because the senior pastor is at home dying of liver cancer. And so he comes to work that day and finds out they just hired a sloppy 23-year-old who doesn't know what he's doing to be the youth pastor. 
It's interesting because my friend, and I didn't even know he was my friend at the time, my friend George looked and thought he saw God doing something in my life. That amidst all the rawness and amidst all of the junior mistakes I was making, there was something that said to the heart of my friend, God's hand is on this young man. And my friend decided to help me get where God was taking me. He didn't have to, but he took me out every single week for a cup of coffee, and we'd walk up and down the streets uh, there in Scottsdale, and he would, just, he would just pour ministry in me. He would just explain ministry to me. I cannot tell you how dramatically my life changed as I stood on the shoulders of my friend because he believed that God had something for me and he wanted to see it happen in me. A couple months in, uh, he asked me, he said, hey, what are you doing for insurance? I said, I don't have any insurance. Uh, the church was paying me $18,000 a year. And uh, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not so old that that was ever a good salary. Okay, it was, it was intern pay. And, uh, and they weren't giving me any benefits. And my friend, who I didn't even realize at the time was my friend, went to the elder board knowing that they would never approve paying for my benefits and said to them, we're going to start giving Lynn Winters benefits and we're going to take it out of my paycheck. And I'm just going to tell you, my friend had nothing to gain except to help his friend be a good husband and a good father to his son. Years later, when George uh, went to another church in Southern California, I followed him over there. I thought, boy, any, anything I can do to be around this guy. And when they ended up without a senior pastor, George went to the church and said, you need to hire Lynn to be the next senior pastor of this church so that he can be king and I will be his number two. This is my mentor. This guy's got... 20 plus more years of ministry experience than me and he's saying make him king and I'll be number two and he can stand on my shoulders which they didn't do <laughs> wisely <laughs> I came and I planted Cornerstone and a few years later I called up my friend George and I said I know this is just a crazy thing but you're getting close to retirement I was just wondering if you'd come spend your last few years working with me and my friend chose to be number two and to give me the chance to be king and came and served here the last five years of his ministry on staff here and it came time for George to retire and, and I and I went to him and I just said George I just got to tell you you have been a remarkable friend to me you've you've been Jonathan to me and I just I don't even know how to speak enough honor to you but I want to say thank you. And my friend looked back at me and he said, no, 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 thank you. This has been the best five years of my life. And he was Jonathan. And he let me be David. And I'm just going to ask you today, do you have a Jonathan? Do you have somebody who's invested in you, who's poured in you, who loved you enough to stand with you when you were right and said, look, you're not going to have to worry about me and my, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I won't leave you. I won't, I won't turn my back on you now. Who had 
the integrity of friendship and loved you enough that when you were getting ready to do something stupid and you were getting ready to make a mistake that you would later regret, looked at you and said, I love you enough to tell you you're wrong right now. And I will not let you do that to your marriage. I will not let you do that to your kids. I will not let you do that to your finances without saying something to you. I love you more than I love our friendship. I'll say the hard thing to you. Do you have a Jonathan in your life who looked and said, I think God's going to do something with you. And the best thing I can do as a friend is help God get that done in you. And I'm just going to say that if in your lifetime you've had one Jonathan, you've been blessed. You, you've been blessed out of your head. And I just thought it would be a really, really cool moment together today if we just stopped and said, you know what? We're going to honor our Jonathans. And so I'm just going to give you a moment right now in the service, and here's what I want us to do. I want, I want you to pull out your unintelligent phones, <clears throat> and uh, uh, maybe you just send a text, and you just say, hey, you know what? We've been having this conversation about friendship. And I just want to tell you, you've been an amazing friend to me, and I just want to say that out loud to you. Or, or maybe you just make a phone call on your way out to the car in a few minutes, and you say, hey, I just wanted to call you and tell you, we were talking about friendship, and you were the one that came to my mind. You've been an amazing friend in my life. Some, some of you want to do something more personal. We, we've got some cards in the seat backs right there, and you can just take a card out, and you can write it to your Jonathan and just say, I just want, I just want to thank you. You've been a blessing from God in my life, and I just want to thank you for what you've meant to me. And I'm, I'm literally right now, I'm being serious, I'm going to give you a moment right now in the service. It's the only time you're ever going to hear me encourage you to take your phones out. And, uh, and, and I'm just going to let you do that for just a moment. So go after it. Go, go do it. Grab a card. Take out your phone. Do whatever you need to do. Let's, let's thank our Jonathans right now for a second. While you're doing that, there's a couple of us in this room, and you don't have anyone to write to. You don't have anyone to make a phone call to. And that's, that's okay. I think it would be totally cool today, though, if you would begin to pray and say, God, would you give me a Jonathan? Would you give me a friend who would stick with me and be loyal to me as a friend, but maybe even more importantly than that, would stand in my face when I'm getting ready to do wrong, would say the hard thing to me that I need to hear? would keep me from making decisions that would cause regret because they loved me more than our friendship. And somebody who saw in my life God's hand and believed that the most important thing they could do in friendship would be to help God get that done in me. God, would you give me a Jonathan? How cool would your life be if you had a Jonathan? And then here's, here's the last question. Are you a Jonathan? If I was to go to your circle of friends and if I had the discussion I had right now and they were all pulling out their cards, how many of you be writing the card to you? How many of you be saying, man, that's, that's my Jonathan. That, that, that's the person who stands with me like no one else stands with me. That's the person who says the hard thing to me when I need to have the hard thing said. That's the person who believes God is doing something in my life and they're helping me get there. Are you anybody's Jonathan? And I'm just going to ask you to even stop and reconsider and look over your group of friends and say, I, is there anybody in that group that God put that friend in your life so that you would be their Jonathan? And what would it mean for you to become Jonathan to them? You'd be a remarkable friend.
last but not least today, uh, we finished Easter on Sunday, and uh, last Sunday, and we felt like that there were people in the room who didn't quite land their decision and didn't get an opportunity to just kind of say, hey, you know what, I really am going to ask Jesus Christ in my heart to be my Savior. So you'll notice real quickly that we left all the yes tables up at each of the doors, and so we're just going to give one more pass for anybody that might be in this room who was here on Easter and just said, man, I wanted to pray that prayer, I wanted to fill out that card, I, I, just, I, I just felt a little awkward, or maybe I felt like I had to hurry back to something for family, and we just want to give you that moment to say, hey, look, you know what, we're going to give you another pass at this and another chance to do it, and those cards are in your seat back, you can just pull them out real quick, you can fill it out and say, hey, look, you know what, I really am asking uh, Jesus to be my Savior. I think it applies to what we talked about today, because here's why. When you figure out Jesus, you're going to figure out that he's the best friend, you could have ever asked for. Talk about a guy who will stand with you no matter what. Talk about a guy who will get in your face when you're getting ready to do wrong. And talk about someone who thinks that God's going to do something with your life and wants to be part of it. And I'm just going to say to you, if you have a hard time being a friend with Jesus, you're going to have a hard time being a friend to the rest of us because we're not nearly as good as him. So you, just, you may want to say, you know what, I do, need, I do need that forever friend. I need that relationship with Jesus. Let's bow our heads. I want to close this in a word of prayer today. I'm going to pray a real quick prayer uh, that if anyone was wanting to make that decision today, they could pray it real quick where you're at. That prayer would go something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, uh, I just am. I'm coming to this moment of friendship, and it suddenly occurs to me that the best friend I could ever have in my life is you. And so I am. I'm just asking you to come into my life and my heart right now. Talk about a friend who would sacrifice. You went to a cross to die so that I could live. And so I'm just asking you today to be my Savior, to be my best friend. And this I pray in Jesus' name. There's some of us in this room that before you lift your eyes and your head, I think you ought to pray for a Jonathan. I think you ought to say, hey, God, I need a Jonathan in my life. Would you give me a Jonathan? All of us need to pray, God, make me a Jonathan. May I be the best friend in my circle of friends. In all of this we prayed in Jesus' name.